Okay, good morning, uh, good afternoon, goodness me, good, good evening. evening everybody. Uh, my name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics and um, this, this year, as, as you'll know, we're, our theme is progress and its discontents and we're interested in um, thinking about how ideas of progress and of um, political improvement more generally um, appear to be stuck at a certain level and so it's actually very, very um, much my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, um, Professor Runciman. Now, Professor Runciman is Professor of Politics at Cambridge University. He is, I believe, the head of the Department of Politics and Industrial Relations there. International Relations. International Relations. Similar, that but crucially you, different. That is, that is well, it, it could, under certain circumstances, be more similar. Um, so I'm sorry, politics and international relations, of course. And he's got wide-ranging interests, um, especially in political and intellectual thought in the 20th century, to a certain extent in the late 19th century as well, and in theories of democratic politics. And I'm sure some of you will have come across his scholarly work. He has, well, he has numerous works, including works on the politics of good intention, on political hypocrisy on um, the history of the idea of democratic crisis and a small book recently just called Politics, which some of you may have seen, which sparked a very interesting and fruitful debate, I think. And he's a regular contributor to the London Review of Books. Um, he's currently uh, working, amongst other things, on a Lieberhume project of which he's one of three directors dealing with the idea of conspiracy and democracy. And it's about that work that he's going to talk to us tonight. Um, he's going to be speaking for about 50 minutes and then we're going to have a chance for questions and discussion. But can I just ask you to start by welcoming our speaker, Professor Runciman. Thank you very much and thank you for the invitation. Um, to, to the project that I'm working on, it's a five-year project and we're about three years in, so we haven't reached our final conclusions, but we've reached some provisional conclusions. And I want to tell you some of the things that I now think about conspiracies and conspiracy theories. And it wasn't a subject I'd thought about much at all before we started work on this. Just say a little bit about the project. It's Leverhulme funded. Um, it's very broad in that we have people working on it who are anthropologists, political theorists, historians, political scientists... It's broadly historical, so it's from the French Revolution to now, to the Snowden revelations and beyond. But it's got a core question at its heart, which is about the relationship between ideas of conspiracy and conspiracy theory and democracy. And the puzzle is that there are lots of real conspiracies in democracies. They happen all the time. There is a lot of subversion, subterfuge. There are plots. There are things that people in power do that they don't want us to know about. But conspiracy theory has a bad name, and conspiracy theorists are often thought to be mad. So the question is, why would it be mad to want to try and find out things that we know exist and that we know that the people who are responsible for them would rather remain hidden? And if conspiracy theorists aren't allowed to do it, then who is going to do it? Who is going to uncover the conspiracies? Because they are out there, they're real. One way to put that question is, how do you draw the line between sensible, rational suspicion and irrational paranoia, 
or where's the dividing line between plausible theories of conspiracy and implausible conspiracy theories? Can you draw that line? So this is what this lecture is about. Is it really possible to draw that line? I'm not sure that it is, actually. That's one of the conclusions I think we've come to. But I want to start by just telling you some of the reasons why this is such a difficult problem and why it provokes very different kinds of answers. So one of the challenges here is just to decide, is this thing that we call conspiracy theory, is it something that's quite pervasive and widespread, or is it a very much a fringe marginal activity? And people who write about democracy tend to take very divergent views on this. So to give you an example, Cass Sunstein, that people may know about, a very well-known political theorist, but also he was a very senior official in the Obama administration, and he's written widely about conspiracy theory, and he thinks it's a really serious problem for democracy. In his words, conspiracy theorists suffer from what he calls crippled epistemology. That's his term. And he thinks this bad thinking, this really bad thinking is dangerous because it kind of infects democracy with paranoia, but also with wild politics and then with violence and ultimately with terrorism. And it has to be stopped. Whereas other writers about democracy say that the thing about conspiracy theory is that it's just a fringe activity. It's not something to be taken seriously. It's generally on the margins. And they often draw comfort from the fact that most people don't think like this. There are lots of temptations to think that there's a giant conspiracy out there. But most people don't seem to think like that. The majority view is not the conspiracy theory view. And so this is a sign of the health of democracy, that conspiracy theory is on the margins. But even this is complicated because conspiracy theory is obviously not a neutral term. It's not just a descriptive term. It is an evaluative term. And it is often a term that's used pejoratively to try and stigmatize ideas. So someone who says that conspiracy theory is dangerous is actually trying to identify the things that they think are dangerous in order to stigmatize them. And someone who says that conspiracy theory is basically a sort of childish or fringe activity may be trying to neutralize the things that they don't like by saying it's just marginal, it's not serious. It is very interesting, I think, that there is a text... (coughs) which probably did more than anything else to turn the study of this kind of thinking into an academic or semi-academic field of study. Uh, It's a famous essay from 1963 by Richard Hofstadter called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And what's interesting about that essay is it actually adopts both of these points of view. So Hofstadter both sort of implies that this paranoid style in American politics is dangerous because it has the potential to be corrosive and to kind of sweep through groupthink and sweep through American politics. But he's also pretty insistent that it's marginal because he says the mainstream of American politics is rational democratic thought. And so this is both on the margins and it threatens to occupy the center. And there's a sense almost that it's the things that are on the fringes that we're frightened about sweeping in. The other interesting thing that I cannot resist telling you, and I only discovered this recently, about Hofstadter's uh, essays, that it was based on a lecture that he gave in Oxford, and he delivered the lecture in Oxford on November the 21st, 1963. And if you have any interest in conspiracy theories, that's a very significant date, because if that lecture inaugurated the academic study of conspiracy theory, the next day was the event that inaugurated conspiracy theory, which was Kennedy's assassination. So he gave the lecture the day before, not the day after, but the day before. And I often think what it must have been like to have been in the audience of that Oxford lecture, hear this account of the paranoid style in American politics, and then the next day hear that Kennedy had been shot. And one of the researchers on our project has looked into this, and it did freak people out. 
So that's, that's one of the challenges. Another challenge is to try and decide, is conspiracy theory sceptical or is it cynical? Because scepticism is a democratic virtue and cynicism is a vice. So scepticism is a virtue because in democracy you want people who are questioning the received wisdom, you want people to challenge opinion that's passed down from authorities on the basis of status or hierarchy. You want seekers after the truth who don't simply take what they're given. And the thing about scepticism or doubt is that it does validate an ideal of truthfulness or trustworthiness. I mean, sceptics are looking for the thing that they can really believe in. And that is very valuable in a democracy, whereas cynicism is the kind of doubt that actually invalidates ideas of truth because cynics will always find malign motives behind whatever they're told. Skepticism has an endpoint, which is when you arrive at the thing that you genuinely think you can believe in. And cynicism has no endpoint, because cynics will always find a sinister motive behind whatever they're told. So with cynicism, in a sense, the questioning never stops, but with skepticism, it potentially does stop. And the worst of conspiracy theory is cynical. It's deeply cynical, and it never stops. So the worst of conspiracy theory is the kind that will not take any answer to any question as acceptable because there is always another question about the motives of the people who are supplying that information. Whereas scepticism is the best of conspiracy theory because without that kind of doubt, someone has to be looking for the conspiracies. If no one is looking for the conspiracies, then we have abdicated our democratic responsibility to challenge what we're being told. It's really hard, again, to decide where these two things blur into each other. But if it's the case that conspiracy theorists do sometimes end up looking like David Icke, who I think is the worst of conspiracy theory, they sometimes start sounding like John Stuart Mill because they're in the business of democratic doubt. So you've got a spectrum. If the spectrum runs from John Stuart Mill to David Icke, right, it is pretty broad, and it's not hard to tell the poles of it apart. I mean, I don't think people are going to confuse John Stuart Mill and David Icke. My experience on this project is that the worst of conspiracy theory is very, very easy to spot, in that when you encounter people who will not take any question, sorry, will not take any answer to any question as settling anything because they always have another set of doubts that lie behind it, and the kinds of conversations that go on and on and make no progress because the conspiracy theory is entrenched, That kind of conversation is easy to identify and it's really hard to mistake it for rational democratic scepticism. But there is this kind of blurry ground in the middle, which I'm going to talk about in a second. And something similar is true of actual conspiracies in that it's not hard to distinguish a conspiracy from a cock-up. There are occasionally times when small groups of people gather together in smoky rooms and plot the overthrow of governments, the assassination of leaders coup d'etat, we know that these things happen. They don't just happen in fiction, they happen in fact. Chris Mullins' book, A Very British Coup, which is a sort of great book about what the British secret state would do if a Jeremy Corbyn-style politician was elected prime minister. So that's fiction, but I feel pretty confident that somewhere in the depths of the British secret state, some people are gathering, not in smoky rooms, because even the British state now... The secret state, you're probably not allowed to smoke, but they're gathering in rooms and starting to think about what would happen if Britain elected a prime minister that withdrew Britain from NATO. I mean, this, it does happen. But again, there's a murky middle ground where conspiracy and cock-up blur. So I want to give you a couple of examples of the murky middle ground. 
So in relation to conspiracy theory, one of the questions that's quite hard to answer is, what's the difference between conspiracy theory and investigative journalism? Because one thing that's often said about conspiracy theorists is that they never accept the answers that they're given. They always want to know what's going on behind the answers that they're given because they have a preconceived idea that there's something that's being hidden that the answers are designed to cover up, which is what investigating investigative journalism does. I mean, that's its guiding precept. So Jeremy Paxman, I don't know if he, if he ever did say this, but it's now, I think, it's a line that's associated with him. He is reputed to have said that... Sorry, that is my phone. I'll leave it. I think that's my phone. Uh, he's reputed, and that it should go off then at the mention of Jeremy Paxman. He's reputed to have said that the question that lies behind all of his questions of politicians is, why is this lying bastard lying to me? And that's the conspiracy theorist question too. So you could say the difference is that when Paxman asks that question, it is a real question in the sense that he doesn't know why this lying bastard is lying to him and he wants to try and find it out. So that would be a kind of scepticism. Whereas the worst of conspiracy theory, it's not a real question because they already know why the lying bastard is lying. They've already decided that they know the plot that lies behind it. They're not trying to find anything out. They're just trying to confirm preconceived beliefs. But even there, I think it's hard. If you're an investigative journalist, you often have to stick to your story. You have an idea of what it is that you're looking for. And you have to stick for the th to the thing you're trying to uncover in the face of all the evidence that comes back the other way telling you that you're wrong. So Watergate, that is a real conspiracy. I don't think it's hard to mistake Watergate for a cock-up, really. I'll come on to that in a second. But the uncovering of Watergate, what Woodward and Bernstein did, so that was investigative journalism, but it was also conspiracy theory, I think. I mean, they were doing something similar. So just because they were uncovering the paranoid style in American politics doesn't mean they weren't representing the paranoid style in American politics. And Deep Throat was nothing other than a representative of the forces he was trying to expose using their methods. So the lines get blurred. Another example, this is to just touch on the thing that is always dangerous to talk about. In a conspiracy theory talk, which is Kennedy's assassination, but like I say, conspiracy and cock-up, these things are different, conspiracy and accident. And people are often asked, so do you subscribe to the conspiracy view of history or the cock-up view of history on the assumption that these things are very, very different because the two things are very different. So you either think these things are accidents or you think these things are plots. As though the two can't merge into one. But they do overlap. So some conspiracies lead to cock-ups and some cock-ups lead to conspiracies. So to take the JFK assassination, I don't want to kind of get into anything more than just what I'm about to say. It is, I think, true that uh, the CIA and the FBI, after Kennedy was assassinated, did try to conceal some of the evidence of the contacts they had had with Lee Harvey Oswald before his assassination, in that files went missing and evidence was destroyed and so on. There was an attempt to conceal the nature of that relationship. So then you look at that and you think, so here you have the agents of the American state among their jobs is to protect the president, trying to conceal the evidence that they had prior knowledge of the activities of the man who assassinated the president. Now that doesn't look good. And if you are a certain kind of conspiracy theorist, it suggests that the American secret state is complicit in Kennedy's assassination. 
But it seems to me it's much more likely that what they were trying to conceal was not foreknowledge of his assassination, but the lack of foreknowledge of his assassination. They had been monitoring the man who killed the president, and they didn't see it coming. So you would want to cover that up. I mean, that is the kind of thing that you would not, for any reason, want to see the light of day. But that does not mean that there was a conspiracy to assassinate the president. Maybe there was. Maybe, I have no idea. It does not mean there was a conspiracy to assassinate the president. But it does mean there was a conspiracy. There was a conspiracy to conceal a cocker. And one of the mistakes, I think, that some kinds of conspiracy theories make is to assume that what you're always looking for is the plot to configure some preferred future outcome. Whereas actually it's often the plot to reconfigure some disastrous past that you wish hadn't happened. And even Watergate, which I said is a kind of clear dividing line here between conspiracy and cock-up. But is Watergate about a plot to kind of plan a future? Or is it about a plot to rewrite a past? I suspect it's more the second than the first. So it's really, I mean, my sense of it, having thought about this and heard lots of talks about this for the past two or three years, is that conspiracy and conspiracy theory are the kind of categories where the ideal types are very easily defined, but there's this huge murky middle ground where <coughs> distinctions get very blurry. So then the question is, is there anything that can be done by way of research to try and inject some clarity into this or get some solid ground from which you can stand and try and analyse what's really going on? And one way it might be possible to do this is to ask questions, to go back to my first point, is it marginal or <coughs> is it mainstream, about what people actually believe? through polling research and other kinds of work, to try and find out just how many people do believe certain kinds of explanations of certain kinds of events, some of which we would probably want to characterize as conspiracy theories. So there's been an increasing amount of work done on this. And I just want to tell you a little bit about some of the findings, and I want to quote you some of these results. So I'll read a couple of these out. Um, there's a very interesting book that was published last year by two American researchers, uh, Uzinski and Parent, Joe, they're both called Joe, which is, I don't know what that means. Um, looking at the history of conspiracy theory in America over the last 100 plus years, drawing on recent polling data, of which there is now quite a lot, asking people, do you believe that elected representatives are being controlled by secret groups and so on? But also one of their innovations was to look at vast archives that newspapers have of letters to the editor, letters to the newspaper, in which people sound off about what they think is going wrong in the world and trying to trace over time how many of those letters posit what you might want to call conspiracist, conspiratorial explanations for events. And you know, it slightly depends how you categorise them, but it's not, like I say, it's not that hard to spot the ones that really are pushing this line. So what this research has discovered is that um, the, the, the views of kind of broad-brush conspiracy theories are held by a significant number, but not a majority of Americans. So, for instance, the, the one that I just mentioned, that you know, elected representatives are basically being controlled by secret groups, um, which I would say is somewhere between scepticism and cynicism. I mean, it's not obviously untrue. Um, about 30% of Americans hold that view. But a much smaller number, when you're asked, do you believe these secret groups have the power to subvert democracy, suspend elections and achieve a coup d'etat? 10% or fewer of Americans believe that. So they believe there's something going on behind the scenes, but they don't believe it's ever going to come out from behind the curtain. 
I think more strikingly what they found is that there is sometimes a view that conspiracy theory is primarily a product of the internet age because it's so visible now and conspiracy theorists who have a view of the world can find like-minded people and form networks where they share their views and reinforce each other's views. What this book found is that the level of the volume of conspiracy theory seems constant over the last hundred years. If you look at letters to newspapers, which is one way of judging it, there were a lot of conspiracy theorists around 100 years ago, and they're roughly the same around, number around now. Um, the, the volume doesn't seem to go up or down that much as a proportion of overall opinion. So the Internet may have made it more visible, but it hasn't made it greater, <coughs> greater in actual volume. I mean, they were just harder to spot back then. It also seems to be the case that it's pretty ecumenical in the sense that you know, sometimes it's thought conspiracy theory is particularly a province of the left or a province of the right, but actually it balances out. There are left-wing conspiracy theories, there are right-wing conspiracy theories. They also discovered that, you know, sometimes assume that conspiracy theorists are always men. Not true. It's roughly 50-50. Um, but the most interesting thing they found is that it does track who's in the White House. So that is... When there's a Democrat in the White House, the conspiracy theories tend to be the president is a secret communist. And when there's a Republican in the White House, the conspiracy theories tend to be that the president is being run by a secret group of bankers. And so what that means is that when your side has lost, you're more likely to believe conspiracy theories, but when your side has won, they fall away. And so conspiracy theories aren't hermetically sealed. But they do. So one of the headlines that came out of this book was conspiracy theory is for losers, meaning it's not for kind of colloquial losers. It's for people who have lost in politics. It's one way of explaining what's going on when your side is out. But in a sense, the reassuring finding is that when your side gets back in, those conspiracy theories tend to fall away to be replaced by new ones coming from the other side. So we did some polling with YouGov in the UK to try and see what British opinion was on this. And I want to just give you some of these results because I think it, it sort of interestingly relates to some of these American findings. Because there is also sometimes an assumption that conspiracy theory is an American phenomenon. Um, it's certainly not an exclusively American phenomenon. So we asked people some of the kind of hardcore conspiracy theories like, do you believe 9-11 was an inside job? Do you believe that government has knowledge that there are space aliens and that they've concealed this knowledge from the public? And very few people in Britain believe these things, but not nobody. Um, they're asked, do you definitely think it's true? Do you think it's possibly true? You add definitely and possibly together, you still only get to about 10%. And definitely it's, it's in very small numbers, believing those things. If you ask people the question, do you believe it's true that a secret group of powerful people really control world events like wars and economic crises, about a third of people will subscribe to that proposition. Now, that's, I, I would still want to call that a conspiracy theory. Um, control, wars and economic crises seems to me to be putting it pretty strongly. But about a third of people are willing to sign up to that. <coughs> and there were some questions which were in this kind of complicated, murky middle ground. Um, do people believe that uh, EU officials are secretly plotting to take over the lawmaking powers of the British government? About half of British people believe that. <laughs> We could do a show of hands, but that's also dangerous territory. Um, another question was, do you believe that the British government has deliberately concealed the true number of immigrants in this country? So, <laughs> we've got a yes from the left. 55% uh, of people believe that. 
And then the last question was, here's a proposition, would you subscribe to this proposition? Even though we live in a democracy, a few people will always run things in this country anyway. 77% of people believe that. Now, that last one does not seem to me to be a conspiracy theory. That seems to me to be just a kind of bit of political realism. Um, and that seems to me, and we had some argument with YouGov about this. We wanted a survey about conspiracy theory, and they wanted this question. And we was like, that's not going to tell you whether people are conspiracy theorists, because that's just going to tell you whether they're sort of paying attention. Um, <laughs> but the, the interesting one, I think, is the um, concealing the true number of immigrants in this country. Because the line was, this is a conspiracy theory question because it has the word deliberately in it. So it has to be a kind of deliberate... But you, you can't, you know, it's not inadvertently. It's some group of people have got together and they've got, they've got to have decided in secret to do this. But there's still a huge kind of grey area around that word deliberately. There are lots of ways in which things can be done deliberately. There's deliberate lying, but there's also just deliberately not releasing information, maybe because people haven't asked for it, or selective releasing of information, or the way you deal with requests for information, or how you brief the press. There's all sorts of things that does involve intention and agency and deliberation. But is that a conspiracy? And even the EU question, you know, there's a way of reading it that there's a small group of people in Brussels who meet once a week to plot to take over the British government. But there are lots of other ways in which it might be true that officials in Brussels at least are thinking about different ways they could do this. So it's, it, one of the lessons of this, I think, is that that middle ground, it's not like polling will answer the questions unequivocally. Polling just highlights how ambiguous the middle ground is. Yes, space aliens is one thing at one end, and yes... Though it's a democracy, there do seem to be elites, is not just a statement of fact. And then in the middle, though the first is not true, by the way, there aren't space aliens, the second, or we don't know about them. The second is true, and then in the middle there's all this murky ground. But there were some other findings that we had which chimes with the, the American results. So one is that people are more likely to sign up to a wide range of conspiracy theories, including some of the more extreme ones, if they also identify as supporters of political parties that are on the margins. So it is true that UKIP supporters are more likely to believe in a wide range of conspiracy theories. I don't think that's because UKIP supporters are mad. I think it's because UKIP supporters support a party that will very, very likely never form a government. And that chimes with the American findings. More striking is that the group of people who are most likely to believe in conspiracy theories are people who in various ways identify as just being fully marginalised from the democratic process. They don't belong to any party. They don't vote. They don't engage. They feel people like them are never going to have a fair crack of the whip. And those people are much more likely to subscribe to conspiracy theories. So there does seem to be some correlation between the likelihood that you will believe in these conspiratorial or conspiracist explanations of events and your relationship to power. So another, just one final finding from this survey, which again is interesting, and it was a, it was a pretty broad, large survey, but you know, survey data is it's just one survey, but we, we found that the part of the country where people were least likely to subscribe to conspiracy theories was Scotland, which is odd because there are lots of conspiracy theories around the Scottish referendum. You probably know some of them. I mean, they're, they're conspiracy theories, and these are, I, would, I have no problem calling these conspiracy theories. These aren't rational scepticism. Uh, that the British government secretly knows about a huge stash of oil in the North Sea that they're not telling the Scots about because if the Scots knew about this when the oil price was high. Another one is that the cybernats who were doing vicious things online before the referendum were not cybernats. They were MI5 agents impersonating cybernats to discredit Scottish nationalism. And then when you get cybernats making these claims online, then the question is, well, are those the MI5 agents or are those, and down you go, the wormhole? That's... 
how it works. But it turns out that in the round, Scots are less likely to sign up to a full range of these questions. So one possible explanation for that is that actually if you live in Scotland now, you are closer to power because of devolution and because of the rise of the SNP. And that actually you might feel much more distant from power in parts of the country where people are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories, which are the regions of England, which have no representation. I mean, if you live in the northeast of England, you're a long way from power. If you live in Scotland, you're much closer to power. Another possibility, and we're going to study this in the next survey we do, is that Scotland now has a proportional representation system. And it may be that two-party systems are particularly prone. I mean, that may be one of the features of the American system, that actually when you lose, you're out. You know, the American system is brutal. You know, when one party controls the whole, it's often mixed, obviously, but when one party controls the presidency and Congress, no one else gets a look in. That would be a reason to feel exclusion. So there are these possibilities, but it is complicated. One of the other findings from the American book, American Conspiracy Theories, is there are occasional moments when conspiracy theory becomes a bipartisan activity. That is, when left and right start pushing these theories. It's quite rare. They actually only identify two. One is the 1950s, around the McCarthyite uh, communist witch hunt time, um, and the other is the 1890s, uh, the age in a sense of populism, but it was populism that both parties were infected by in different ways. Um, and the 1890s was a period when people were very suspicious of corporate power, moneyed elites, special interests. It was a period of global depression, it was a period of rapid technological change. It was a bit like now. And I think there is a third period where conspiracy theory is bipartisan, which is now, particularly in the United States. So last night, you will know that the winners of the New Hampshire primary were Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Now, these are candidates coming, in some senses, from the fringes of their two parties. They're also candidates, and you have to be careful about how we put this, but they're candidates who... In some of the things they say, pay a kind of lip service to some of the, not the wildest conspiracy theories, but some of the ones that are somewhere in that murky ground. Some of their supporters unquestionably sign up to some of the wilder conspiracy theories. When one says this, people often want to push back and say there isn't equivalence here, that Trump is much worse than Sanders, particularly with the kind of dog whistle politics and the, the racial politics and the xenophobia and so on, and the thought that there are outsiders or that there are infiltrators. And I th I'm happy to say that that's true, that it isn't equivalent, that Trump is in many ways worse. But I don't want to say that Trump is, you know, represents American conspiracy theory and Sanders doesn't. Both Trump and Sanders, in different ways, claim that the Iowa result was fixed. Um, Sanders' support is overwhelming among 18 to 29-year-olds. That happens to be the group that are most likely to subscribe to conspiracy theories. I'll come back to this equivalence question in a second. Um, but it is similar to the 1890s, too, in that a lot of things that Trump and maybe particularly Sanders, but both say, about elites, money, power, control in American politics is not crazy conspiracy theory. It is rational skepticism. And in the 1890s, populism was full of claims that, with hindsight, are true about the co-option of American democracy by money and power, about the cosy relationships in Washington and between Washington and Wall Street, about the ways in which democracy had somehow been stolen from the people. But 1890s populism was also shot through with some pretty wild, anti-Semitic, racially charged views about the city of London and the role of the Rothschilds and the Jewish tentacles that fed from the city of London into Wall Street and so on. 
And these things go together. I mean, it's a, there is a sense in which it's very hard to separate them out. The movement contains both. And we do lead, seem to be living through just another such age. I mean, Sanders and Trump, these, these phenomena are going hand in hand. We don't have anything quite equivalent in Britain. It's not like it's Farage and Corbyn, but that would be the closest analogy, I think. In the 1890s, what made the difference was, well, a range of things. Economic recovery, eventually. Genuine political change. Um, particularly, eventually, in the 20th century, Theodore Roosevelt and then Woodrow Wilson, radical reformist uh, presidents from the two parties, one of whom Roosevelt then splits his party. But people trying to channel and co-opt some of this anti-monopolistic, anti-oligarchic populist politics, but channel it through the Washington system. And so it, it is the case that genuine political change channeled through the system does seem to break the hold of this kind of dance of conspiracy theories. And it is also true that without something to break that hold, these conspiracy theories do feed off each other. Again, I don't think there's strict equivalence here, but people who subscribe to the Occupy view of the world think that the Tea Party is a front for American business. And people who subscribe to the Tea Party view of the world think that Occupy is a front for big government. And again, I think personally, that the, the view that the Tea Party is a front for big business probably has a little more truth in it, that the Koch brothers, there's a lot of evidence now they do fund this, a lot of these movements. But anyone who, you know, the full conspiracy theorist view, which is that that's all there is to say, that the Tea Party is just a sham, there are these few billionaires behind it, that's wrong, and that's way too cynical. The Tea Party is also a genuine popular movement of extremely unhappy and alienated mainstream Americans. And the, the full conspiracy theory view pushes rational skepticism to the margins because you want to be able to account for the fact that even if the Koch brothers weren't founding these things, and the fact that this, you know, Trump is anti the Koch brothers and a lot of these people have switched to Trump, it's not as simple as just finding where the money is and that explains what's going on. But they do have a tendency to feed off each other, so change has to come through the political system to break that relationship. And I think there is grounds for being genuinely anxious about where will this change come from, particularly in the United States. I mean, would a Trump presidency represent the change that brings the age of conspiracy theory to an end? Or would it just put it on steroids? It's a real question, I think. And it's really hard to know um, what the answer is. So it's really difficult to know what would break it. And there's another issue here, which is this is also an age of technocracy. So the other way in which conspiracy theory can become bipartisan is both basic political constituencies think genuinely it does not matter who you vote for because a small group of not bankers or Jews or Muslims, but experts are running the government. Or in other words, economists are running the government. Because if we live in a world that is so complex that only the few people who understand it are capable of making the decisions that will rescue us from disaster, that is going to breed ecumenical bipartisan conspiracy theory. Because, And lots of things have fed the age of conspiracy theory of the Obama administration, but I think one of them is that his decision, which I think was a very sound policy decision, when he won the election in 2008 to immediately rehire Geithner and Bernanke um, and Paulson, you know, the, the economists, the technocrats whose job it was to save the American economy on the, at the height of the crash, to get continuity in American politics and to essentially, you know, the people who created the mess to, to fix it. Um, probably the, the right thing to do policy-wise, but as politics, I mean, it does fuel the view that it doesn't matter who wins. 
And there is a big contrast between what Obama did and what Franklin Roosevelt did in 32-33, when Herbert Hoover said to him in the interregnum, which was five months then, join with me and let's have a kind of bipartisan... And Roosevelt said, when I come in, there has to be an absolutely clean break or people are not going to trust that change is real. I think he was right, and I think Obama was wrong. What else Obama could have done, I don't know. So it is very difficult. Now, I just want to say, I want to talk about two other broad things here, and then I'll try and sort of pull these threads together, <clears throat> in a way. Uh, so it's, there aren't just conspiracy theories about politics. There are also conspiracy theories about lots of other things. Uh, in, a, in an age of technocracy and expertise, there is a lot of conspiracy theory, some of it rational suspicion, some of it profound cynicism about science. The science is on the receiving end of a lot of deep doubt. Um, and some of it is full-blown conspiracy theory that vaccinations are a government plot to brainwash people. If you want to Google Large Hadron Collider conspiracy theories, you can find out that people have very strange beliefs about what's really going on in that, whatever it is. Um, and climate change is shot through with, as an issue with conspiracy theory. Um, and it, is, it, it makes it a very difficult issue because scepticism about climate change, and I think there are lots of things to be rationally sceptical about in relation to climate change, but a significant chunk of it now comes out as cynicism. It's a hoax, particularly in America, but not exclusively in America. It's a hoax. It's a scam. It's a con. And this conspiracy theory with climate change, it operates in the space between the long-term consequences of whatever we do about climate change and the short-term benefits to certain people of whatever we do about climate change. So the consequences, whatever we do, are relatively distant. But the who benefits question has immediate answers. So if we do something, ethanol producers benefit, or scientists benefit because they get huge grants, or politicians benefit because they get to raise new taxes. And if we don't do something, uh, fossil fuel producers benefit, or motorists benefit. And it's in that space that conspiracy theory flourishes. So we, we don't really have an answer to the question of what is the long-term long consequence of this decision, but we do have an answer to the question who benefits. That fuels cynicism. And in the climate issue, there is the equivalent danger that the conspiracy theories feed off each other in that climate activists believe that climate skepticism is, again, funded primarily by the Koch brothers. Uh, climate skeptics believe that climate activism is funded by big government. Again, I don't think there's moral equivalence there. I mean, the, the, the great scandal for the skeptics, which is the climate gate thing where some emails came out of the University of East Anglia suggesting that scientists maybe occasionally think politically about peer review, I don't think is analogous to discovering that billionaires are funding scientists to produce reports that promote their economic interests. But these things feed off each other and they have the same effect which is that rational scepticism, there are lots of things to be sceptical about with climate change. We really don't know what the best thing is to do. But rational scepticism gets swamped, and these more radical views push the argument to the margins. And the challenge with climate change, like with politics, is what's the event? You know, what's the real change? If, if the actual consequences are 30, 40, 50 years ahead, what's the change that's going to break the vicious cycle of conspiracy theory? And it is really hard to know. Something needs to intrude to make that happen. I just want to give you one more example of this, and this is something that we discovered very recently, and it seems to me a really interesting study of this. This is the last example I'll give, and then I'll try and give you some conclusions. So we had a researcher come to visit our project a couple of weeks ago, a French uh, 
social scientist uh, to talk about the, the new powers that went through today, actually, just, I think, this afternoon, uh, of the French state to create new forms of um, legislation that allow for emergency government in a terrorist attack. But he was also talking about the kinds of conspiracy theories that have emerged in France. So France is not as much home to conspiracy theory as America, but it's not far behind, particularly if you go back to the French Revolution. Um, the kinds of conspiracy theories that emerged in France after the Charlie Hebdo attacks, relative to what happened after the November attacks in Paris, where many more people were killed and the attacks were much more random. So after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in February, I think it was, France was apparently awash with conspiracy theories within minutes, partly because the official government account of what had happened was delayed, and in that vacuum, this is something the internet does do, in that vacuum, conspiracy theory rushed to fill it. Um, but partly also because the attacks themselves lent themselves to conspiracy theories. Relatively small scale, you could watch them on TV, some of the events as they were unfolding, a satirical magazine with cartoons that were uh, you know, offensive to many people, uh, a Jewish supermarket, the clear involvement of the, Ameri of the French secret uh, security services. It was just fertile breeding ground for conspiracy theories. And it got so bad that the French state, being the French state, in the aftermath of this, decided to institute a new re-education program in French schools to teach children not to believe conspiracy theories. Because there was a sudden panic that France was just being overrun. I mean, this, this kind of, you know, the paranoia breeds paranoia. This paranoia, that this had become the default explanation. No one was believing the government anymore. And th this research said there were at least 20 identifiable separate conspiracy theories to explain the Charlie Hebdo affair. And all of these were getting serious traction, and some of them were getting serious coverage in the newspapers. And then after the November attacks, there were very, very few conspiracy theories. So this was partly because the government had learnt its lesson, and it responded much, much more quickly to try and tell people what was going on, but also admitted some doubt. So after Charlie Hebdo, they didn't want to admit, the state didn't want to admit, it didn't know what was happening, so it said nothing. And they learned that's not a good way to counter conspiracy theories. much better to try and, in real time, give people a sense of what you're trying to work out. Maybe it was because French schools had re-educated French children and then they'd re-educated their parents, not, but that seems unlikely. Or it's because the attacks were sufficiently random that everybody was afraid. And, again, the evidence, the anecdotal evidence from people who were in Paris is this was true. So the thing about the Charlie Hebdo attacks is that most people didn't think it could have been them partly because there seem to be reasons behind. But the November Paris attacks, who publishes potentially offensive satirical cartoons? But who goes out on a Friday night to a music venue or football match or a restaurant? It's, it's everybody. And so this possibility that certain kinds of events cut through the kind of circle of paranoia and suspicion, feeding paranoia and suspicion, but the thing about the Charlie Hebdo attacks is they made people afraid, but not so afraid that they didn't want to kind of believe these things. Made them a little, sort of the frisson of fear that you need to generate conspiracy theories. Whereas the cold, hard fear of the November attacks actually kills conspiracy theories. Two more things to say about that. One is that the cold, hard fear of the November attacks also is a great opportunity for the French government to ram through extreme forms of legislation that will in future unquestionably fuel new conspiracy theories because of the emergency laws that are now in place.
But also, there is some analogy here, I think, with climate change. I mean, people aren't actually, I don't think, afraid of climate change. I mean, I think it gives people a frisson fear, which is great for generating conspiracy theories. But we haven't yet had the event that really scares them. And when that happens, a bit like political change, real change, maybe it cuts through. The problem with climate change is that it may not happen for a while, but the broader problem is you can't wish for the event that will cut through conspiracy theory when it's something like a terrorist attack that terrifies everyone because it is insane to wish for a terrorist attack. So there is a real challenge here. Okay, a few things by way of conclusion. So what we, if you take these various kind of findings and um, insights, um, you know, insights I've borrowed from people who've talked to our program, is there any way of drawing this line? So I want to, I want to give you know, one more sort of instance of this by talking about Corbyn, um, not initially Jeremy Corbyn, but his brother Piers Corbyn, who's less well-known, um, but a very interesting figure. Uh, so Piers Corbyn is a climate skeptic. He's an alternative weather forecaster um, who believes that changing climate needs to be explained by sun activity and that anyone who relates it to carbon levels in the atmosphere is peddling some kind of falsehood probably for other reasons. Um, if you look at his website, it has some of the characteristics of what I would think of as the less appealing forms of conspiracy theory. He thinks that the BBC is part of a Goebbels-esque plot to force climate change down our throats and so on. Now, it would be, I think, very unfair to say, well, Piers Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, join the dots. I don't want to say that. Um, rather, I want to offer a kind of defense of Piers Corbyn, which is I think he's almost certainly wrong in everything that he says. Um, I mean, for instance, he says on his website that he thinks it's outrageous that Prince Charles is out there pushing the Goebbels-esque plot about climate change, given that he, Piers Corbyn, was the only person who got the weather right on Wills and Kate's wedding day. So that, I mean, that to me is not a hallmark of kind of John Stuart Millian scepticism. But Piers Corbyn, like his brother, believes that you push back against received opinion and you challenge established elites, particularly when they seem to come from positions of power that if no one challenges them will become entrenched and so on. And there is the possibility that applies both to Piers Corbyn and maybe even to his brother. Because his brother, you know, the, the, the press sometimes want to describe Jeremy Corbyn as a conspiracy theorist, which I don't think is true or helpful and is clearly stigmatizing. But he does associate with some. I mean, the Stop the War movement, there are lots of things to be said about it. I don't think it's a threat to national security. I don't think that the things that it believes are wrong. I think a lot of the things that members of the Stop the War movement believe are right but the Stop the War website does have articles that say things like the FIFA corruption scandals can be traced back to Israel. And that's kind of right at the margins. Um, and so if I was the leader of the Labour Party, I wouldn't want to associate myself with those people, even if some of the things they believe are true. But maybe you don't get to pick the nice bits of the package and leave out the nasty bits or the foolish bits. I mean, maybe these things, this is the challenge. Maybe these things come together. So ideally, you would have rational John Stuart Mill-type skepticism without David Icke-ism. But particularly in an age of political disengagement, where most people, frankly, can't be bothered with politics at all, what if the people who are really active and sort of doing the, the digging, it's really hard to separate out the two? 
and you almost inevitably get in this blurry middle ground a coming together of some of the wilder ideas with some of the ideas that we need to hear about and some of the digging that we need. So what if you can't separate them out? And, and you could put it, go further and say, you wouldn't want a society without conspiracy theory. I mean, if you lived in a democracy where there were no conspiracy theories, that would be a dead democracy. I mean, it's really hard to imagine how that would work because it would, it would suggest that people had more or less completely, I think, disengaged with questioning power. Equally, you don't want a society with too much conspiracy theory. So we've also, um, on this project, had people talk about and studies of places like Pakistan and um, Iran, Argentina, uh, Turkey, um, either societies with a long history of um, having been colonized and then achieving independence, societies going through complicated democratic transitions with recent memories of vicious autocratic government and so on. Lots of complicated things. But also societies where there just are a lot of real conspiracies. Politicians do still get assassinated. Um, Democracy is very, very fragile. You really can't always trust what you're hearing. And it would be rational to really doubt a lot of things. Where, and this is from people who live in these societies and don't just study them but engage in them politically, conspiracy theory, we are told, is just the default language of politics. It's, It's the way that people explain how the world works because it's the way to explain how that world works. But that is not a sign of a healthy democracy where it's the default, and it's not a sign of a healthy democracy where it's absent. So you almost have this kind of Goldilocks account where you don't want too much conspiracy theory, and you don't want too little conspiracy theory. You want just the right amount of conspiracy theory to show that your society is questioning, and given that there are real conspiracies out there that no one is assuming that the wildest suppositions are never true, if five years ago you'd been told that the American NSA was, or at least had the potential to spy on everything that we say and do, that would have sounded then like conspiracy theory, and now it's fact. Even David Icke, and incidentally when we launched this project uh, three years ago, we did an event that the BBC reported on, that David Icke then pricked up on his Twitter feed and he asked his followers what's really going on with this project. And they immediately said, well, it's funded by the Levy-Hume Foundation, and Lord Lever was a Freemason. You know, give us something difficult to answer. Um, so, you know, conspiracy theories come um, in all shapes and sizes. I've now lost my train of thought. Um, but th- the fundamental challenge of getting the right amount, if you say of conspiracy theorists that you're allowed to go so far but no further, that you know, this is where we draw the line, we like you to do this, but not that. You know, that. We want you to kind of uncover the conspiracies that we really know are out there. That was my thought. Even David Icke, um, who believes that the royal family are lizards in human form and that the, there is a 1% elite that is controlling the world, but they are also lizards in human form. And he also had, was saying on his website for, I think, he says 15 years, I don't know if it's that long, that there was a um, secret group of paedophiles at the BBC that included Jimmy Savile and that the BBC were covering up for their activities. And so if you say to David Icke, that lizard thing, he'll say, look, I was right about that. You wait. So if you want to separate these things out, so yes, we want people really pushing the BBC. I don't think there was a conspiracy at the BBC, but there was complicity unquestionably and there was deep complacency. And one of the things that the conspiracy theorists potentially do 
is challenge complacency unless by stigmatizing those conspiracy theorists it allows elites to kind of push them to the margins. But if you want the people kind of pushing out the BBC but not wasting their time trying to kind of rip the mask off the royal family, it's really, if you say to David Icke, look, we'd like you to do this and not this, it's not going to make him think that elites aren't controlling the world. It's going to make him believe that you have a secret agenda, which you do, which is you think this is important and this is not important. So it's really, really hard to know how to get the balance right. I think the evidence from the research I've been talking about, and I'll finish with this, is that it's not the case that there is something within this spectrum that runs from rational skepticism to wild conspiracy theory where you can find a kind of self-sealing moment where it's right and then it stops. I don't think, I mean, I think any sort of movement of democratic skepticism or populism or anti-oligarchicism, some of the things that we see now, challenging received opinions, saying just because there's a scientific consensus doesn't mean it's necessarily true and is there really a consensus? I don't think that's ever going to stop short of some wilder conspiracy theories. Some people are going to make, some individuals are going to make that leap, some movements are going to contain both elements. I don't think there's anything that's going to, sort of within that broad range of opinion, stop you at the right point. It is external events. I think things happen that break some of the more vicious circles where the less helpful kinds of conspiracy theory crowd out the really vital rational scepticism. I think we may be living through such an age now. I don't think that um, the supporters of Donald Trump are actually going to say, we, should, we, we need to be careful about how far we go here. I think if Donald Trump wins the presidency, then maybe he and others will have to think about which views they can still hold and which ones they have to sacrifice in the name of getting things done. I think the same would be true if Jeremy Corbyn becomes... Prime Minister. Um, if, on the other hand, Trumpism or Corbynism is just not interested in power at all, then these theories are going to feed off each other. Either something like power has to intrude, real hard political choices. Hard political choices are good at killing the worst of conspiracy theories, but then the people who make those choices then need to be scrutinised by the next generation, some of whom will be conspiracy theorists, and then eventually, if this is a democracy, some of them will win power, and then they need to be scrutinised. But we are living in an age where you know, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, it's hard to see where this is coming from. I mean, Trumpism, you know, if Trump wins the presidency, there has never been a president like that. Um, actually, if Sanders wins, there has never been a president like that, I don't think. Um, so would this be the, the break point or would this be the thing that fuels? Maybe some environmental event will break the spell that conspiracy theory currently has over lots of arguments about climate change. All of the conspiracy theories about Europe and you know, what's really going on with Cameron in Brussels and EU integration and migration and so on. It's not hard to think of circumstances in which European politics dramatically changes for the better. I mean, people are very pessimistic, but why couldn't it get better? And new kinds of politicians come along who find a way to persuade people that real change happens at the European level. And if that were the case, I think that would break the hold of some of these conspiracy theories. But it's also possible that it won't happen. So, that could be my phone again, uh, which I did forget to switch off. So, there is um, one image that conspiracy theorists like to have of themselves, which is that they are kind of miners, coal miners after the truth. That they are the ones. This is the sort of heroic view, and I think there is a lot to be said for this um, at the kind of rational, skeptical end. It's the heroic view that they are digging, you know, going deep down into the dark, 
looking for the things that no one else wants to find. They're willing to get really dirty and messy. You know, it's an ugly job, but somebody's got to do it. Um, and then they bring back to the surface stuff that we need to know. Um, I think there's something to be said for that, but there are limits to the truth of that, actually. Um, I think it way overvalorizes it. Um, an alternative image is that conspiracy theories are like canaries in the coal mine, um, which is that they are warning signals. So I think the prevalence of conspiracy theory is not a cause of what's gone wrong with democracy, but it may be a symptom. I think well-functioning democracies have conspiracy theories running through them, but the conspiracy theories at least rotate. They don't just feed off each other, but they actually replace each other, and real political change changes the dynamic. But there are situations in which political uh, conspiracy theories maybe just have this kind of long life and nothing seems to break the cycle. So it's, they're not canaries in the coal mine in the sense that when they die, you know you're in trouble. They're canaries in the coal mine in the opposite sense, that if they don't die you know you're in trouble. And I think we're, you know, we're at the start of this new populist anti-oligarchic age. I mean, the, the theme of this, progress and its discontents, we're banging the, I think, some of the early stages of it, technological change and changes in the way that democracies function. Um, and the, the change is coming that might break this cycle, but it's also at least possible, I think, to be pessimistic, that we are entering a phase where bad conspiracy is crowding out good, and that, I think, is dangerous for democracy. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've got a, about a half an hour here for questions and discussion, so I'm just going to start by taking individuals, but we'll see how we go. We might collect some um, yep. as we go on. So um, who, who would like to start? Um, could I have this gentleman with the beard in the front? Hi. Uh, I'll just ask you before you start and everyone else to just say who you are and where you're from, just so we're what uh, My name's Avik. I'm just here in a private capacity. Um, so uh, it seems to me the focus there was on the how uh, conspiracy theories can affect democracy. Just wondering if you could say a wee bit more about uh, causality in the other direction mm -hmm. and how democracy affects uh, conspiracy theories. In particular, um, I just wonder whether the fact of developing democracy and um, the kind of implication of having the right to vote and being told that your opinion matters mm. uh, gives you more confidence in your judgment and makes you more likely to um, think that you are more likely to be right than other people. And this, that sort of confidence breeds um, conspiracy theory. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I sort of touched on some of these things in that um, I think it's a complicated relationship um, in that what, what you would want from a well-functioning democracy is that people feeling that they have a right to vote and to express an opinion, but they don't have a right always to win, is one of the things that teaches people to kind of take the rough with the smooth and not always look for kind of nefarious votives, uh, motives among the people who have defeated them. But it doesn't always come out like that. And I think it is you know, it's part of what I was talking about. It's sometimes difficult to know exactly how to get that balance right. But there do seem to be, you know, there does seem to be evidence that certain types of democratic situations make it more likely that people who feel that they have ostensibly been given rights, but these rights are somehow hollow or empty, are going to become conspiracy theory-minded. Um, you know, one situation obviously would be just if 
uh, one-party rules for a long, long time. I mean, I think one-party rule is a recipe for conspiracy theories. Another is, like I said, during democratic transition, where there is a lot of high-flown rhetoric about what the difference the change to democracy will make, but it doesn't actually make that much difference because the institutions of the state still function from the previous regime. And so people discover that a lot of things uh, that they thought would all be different under democracy aren't, and then they ask the question, well, what's really going on? So a lot of that does still hold. I mean, the ideal of a well-functioning democracy where a kind of John Stuart Mill democracy where opinion counters opinion and people respect each other and they think the most important thing is to collectively seek the truth and not to take anything too much on trust but not to invalidate the idea of trust altogether. That would be nice, but it doesn't happen very often. Okay. Um, Can I start with this gentleman here? Um, Just wait for the microphone and say who you are and where you're from, please. Yeah, I wonder, um, I wonder how just, you feel just, about David Cameron's recent comments. Could you comments. just say who you are and where you're from? Sorry, my name is Roy Hunter, uh, and I'm associated with a group called Reinvestigate 9-11. So I, I am a conspiracy theorist. Um, but I wonder how you judged uh, David Cameron's recent comments about um, we basically calling conspiracy theorists uh, non, non-violent extremists. So I am now basically a non-violent extremist because I do believe 9-11 was an inside job. But do you not feel that that, that they can then use that? Uh, They say they have to prosecute. They have to to counter um, non-violent extremism as well as violent extremism. But do you not feel that they will then use those laws that they bring in through that to then tackle... Uh, conspiracy theories we know are true, like financial conspiracy theories, uh, the political paedophile conspiracies, and that uh, they, they would actually hijack that, and those laws would actually um, strangle legitimate debate. That is a uh, treacherous question, um, because I want to say that I, I do agree with you in many ways. Um, I, I certainly think that, I mean, to, to sort of break it down a bit, It is unquestionably the case that the label conspiracy theory is used to target and stigmatize people whom those in power do not wish to be given a legitimate hearing. So to give a different example, I mean, Tony Blair, in the aftermath of the Iraq war, did like to label critics of that war conspiracy theorists in the hope of sort of tarnishing them with that brush. And, you know, I, I think that that is bad politics. And I think probably like you, that then trying to turn that kind of um, politics into law makes it worse for lots of dangerous reasons because it sets all sorts of precedents and it will have unintended consequences and so on. On the other hand, I probably don't share your view, which is to try and give a kind of conspiratorial explanation of what's going on there, which is that they're deliberately doing this because they're not coming after you. What they want to do is have legislation in place so that the things that they really want to hush up, actually, uh, like the next great financial scandal, they can use the law to hush up. I just don't believe that it works like that. I do think that most uh, conspiracies are retrospective, not prospective, in that I think mostly when governments conspire, they're conspiring to cover up things they wish they hadn't done rather than to create circumstances that they hope will arrive in the future. But that such legislation could be exploited, I think I'm willing to say that 
I agree with you, but obviously there are some things I don't agree with you about. I don't think that 9-11 was an inside job. But you are not in a vanishingly small minority, as I try to suggest in my... I mean, you are... Um, if, say, 10% of the population are, are willing to think like that, that's um, you know, more people than voted Liberal Democrat at the last election. Okay, can I take this um, woman here with the glasses and then I might start taking groups, I think. Thanks, Sam. My name's Caroline Edgerton and I work at our local CAB. I just wanted to take you up on your idea that most conspiracies are retrospective. What about what's going on at the moment, which is a kind of... Right. uh, Okay, an example of a prospective one is the uh, deliberate failure to collect statistics on, for instance, child poverty, um, uh, benefit claimants and the effects of benefit reform. Um, I think that's probably a pretty good example of a prospective. um, Okay, I'll repeat it. So the question is, um, an example of a prospective conspiracy would be, this is what has just been suggested, the deliberate failure to collect the necessary statistics on something like child poverty so that we don't have the evidence that would require us to act? Is that the thought? I mean, I have to say that I I, am... So so I don't think all conspiracies are backward-looking. I just think many more of them are backward-looking than conspiracy theorists think, because there is a tendency to look for the plot (coughs) that led to the event rather than the plot that followed the event. But obviously there are, you know, people do get together in darkened rooms and they plot events, and sometimes these events happen. But what you're describing seems to me to fall in that murky ground, like I said, with the question, uh, is the British government deliberately hiding the, the true number of immigrants in this country? In that there are lots of ways in which you can fail to do something. Um, and some of it might be uh, deliberate. I mean, for instance, I didn't even get into this, but there's a big sort of murky area, where does collusion drift into conspiracy? Because you can collude in things without being part of the conspiracy, in that you just go along with it, right? I mean, something's happening and something's happening. There doesn't have to be an organizing intelligence behind it. People can be motivated to allow things to happen. It can serve their interests and so on. Um, I still think it's unlikely that when governments fail to do things because it would benefit them, it's because they have a clear idea of the future outcome they hope to achieve. I think they just think it would be convenient. So I'm a bit reluctant to call that a, a prospective conspiracy in the same way that when a group of people got together and decided to kill Abraham Lincoln and then they killed him, that was a prospective conspiracy. Um, I think that what you're describing is in this murky middle ground, but I wouldn't want to be one of the people who says that because you said that, uh, you belong with the conspiracy theorists who can all be discounted I mean, I think it's an open question, and I think reasonable skepticism in a democracy requires that you really ask hard questions when you discover that a government has failed to do something that it is either required to do or, at the very least, it absolutely ought to do. Why? But I don't think you should prejudge in advance that you know the answer. Okay, can I take two people now at once? Um, the, the man with the Do you have glasses? Yes, the man with the glasses, and then the person, yeah, to my right. Yeah, um, the name's um, Ewan Grant. I'm a former law enforcement intelligence analyst, and in relation to the gentleman's comment about 9-11... 
I did write a report on a few hours afterwards on the likely consequences of that. I certainly never believed in a conspiracy theory, although um, I do have a friend who was born in December of 1963, and his two Christian names are Lee Harvey. We're still trying to work that one out. My question is, um, how is social media and the explosion in communications affecting things? Uh, It does seem to me that attention spans and reaction spans are all much quicker, which you referred to earlier in relation to Paris. Is this making generally most people vulnerable to conspiracy theories because there's less time to think things through? Or is the example of France outweighing that? Thank you. Yeah, it's a very good question. Just, oh, sorry. just taking oh. two. Sorry. No, just because we've it is a very good question, but we're <laughs> going to get another one. Very good question. And uh, So social media and just this gentleman here. Hi there. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Um, my name's Tavindu. I'm a first year at the LSE doing economics. Uh-huh. And um, my question is about something you said earlier about Obama um, filling the Fed up again with Geithner and um, yeah. I think Greenspan and that. And um, I just want to understand why, after FDR's success after the Wall Street crash, where he started a new clean straight, as to why Obama would do that after, like, um, Rubini and um, Raghu and Rajan clearly stated that there could be, like, a subprime mortgage crisis. Like, notable, notable economists. Like, I just want to understand yeah. as to why. Okay, well, uh, so I'll answer the second question first. I'll give you a short answer. This is what I think, but it's... Um, I mean, I think the comparison with FDR is really interesting. One of the interesting things about FDR and Obama is that when FDR came into the White House, people were in despair, and they thought, well, this guy isn't going to save it. He's just a career political hack. He doesn't know anything. He's not particularly smart. We've just elected another politician. When Obama came in, it's like, this is the savior because this is the smartest guy who's ever been in the White House. He, you know, he's, he's got this incredible record, and this is exactly what we want. The difference is that FDR was a politician, and Obama has never been a politician. And what FDR did was a political choice, and what Obama did was a policy choice, because Obama is a technocrat, I think, at root. I mean, he's also a community organizer, but he's not what Roosevelt was, which is a lot. I mean, Obama, for instance, had no experience of losing elections or anything like that. He just, it's, it's, a, you know, it's an amazing life story, but it was relatively easy for him. I mean, doors opened. Um, Roosevelt, it was tough. Um, and I just think that, you know, politics teaches you some hard lessons. So I think Obama just judged the risks differently. Um, he saw the policy risks. Roosevelt saw the political risks. I'm not saying Obama was wrong, um, but I think that's the difference. And on the social media question, I don't think it's speed. I think there is e- evidence now that these kind of echo chamber effects do really matter. Um, in the, if the danger, as I was trying to say, is that when points of view become not just hermetically sealed, but they then interact with other hermetically sealed points of view. I mean, I think the the echo chamber thing, it's not just the case that climate skeptics only talk to climate skeptics. It's that climate skeptics talk to climate skeptics and link to the points of view that they find easiest to discredit. And so these things, so the sort of echo chambers bounce off each other. And it does require, I think, events to come in. But I think the, I mean, it's a horrible way to put it, but the Paris case is somewhat hopeful in that it, it is the case, I think, that some things do cut through and that, um, you know, there, there are, I mean, maybe there could be a positive version of that, which is it's not 
a terrorist event, but it's a dramatic political moment of political change that, that makes a difference. But So social media, I think it has had a, a significant effect. But as I tried to indicate, the view that's sometimes held, which is that the Internet has just seen an explosion of conspiracy theories. The number of people who tend to believe these things does not seem to have changed much. It has made it more visible. And it's also true that the Internet is a great way for, if you believe something, to find someone else in the world who believes it and not just be the only person in your village who believes it. But it's also a great way for other people to discredit you because the Internet is also a great way of finding out facts. I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, I'm sure there are lots of conspiracy theories about Wikipedia, but Wikipedia is also a pretty reliable source of information. Um, so I, I, th- I think it, it happens quicker in the sense that conspiracy theories are quicker to arise but also quicker to go because they can be punctured. But it's the echo chamber effect that's dangerous. Okay. Um, let's see. We've got a number of people. Can I start with that uh, person at the back? I think more glasses, and then this woman also with glasses. <laughs> yeah, hi. Kash Bikaman from the Department of Government. I'm not sure this is on. Is this it? Is on, yeah. Yes. So. I would like to hear a bit more about the things that we can do. I mean, you suggested a few things, but you didn't say very much about it. So you said we have to be fast. So, I mean, the French government did not make that mistake again to wait and not say much. And you said something about big events that cut through, but we can't really create them on purpose. So, I mean, if we are concerned about the level of conspiracy theories, is there anything else we can do? So, I mean, this is where I am. Oh. Sorry, no, I just I'm so to... keen to answer no, those questions. They're, they're excellent questions. Um, yeah, please. Hello? Not working. Um, yeah, I'm uh, Kosh. My name's Kosh. Um, and uh, so I had a question kind of about um, the uh, ideal which you were referring to of kind of well-functioning democracy, yeah. and quite often you epitomise that with, with reference to um, John Stuart Mill, um, yeah. and that seemed like quite a Uh, a good example for what I wanted to ask, which is, um, so uh, John Stuart Mill was, as as you know, um, a kind of big um, supporter of the British colonial project and wrote about how despotism was a legitimate mode of government in dealing with barbarous races and so on. And that that, um, uh, brings me, I suppose, to uh, a framework which I felt was... um, maybe presupposed in some of what you were saying, which was that the difference between the kind of rational scepticism and the conspiracy theories was in a way the conspiracy theories were more extreme or more radical or questioning further. And I kind of wanted to ask, um, given that there are many sort of uh, um, people who might be criticizing very radically, but not in a kind of conspiratorial mode, but rather in terms of perhaps giving more structural analyses of the kinds of um, flaws in existing political systems. Uh, so, for example, talking about like the um, prison industrial complex and incarceration of people of colour as like a legacy from slavery, that's the link with John Stuart Mill, um, uh, are not giving conspiracy theory analyses of it. And I wondered whether your research had talked about distinguishing um, the kind of features which distinguish those. Yeah. Okay, am I allowed to go? Yeah, please. Okay, that's, a, that's also an excellent question. Um, and it's, you know, lots of things that one could say about that. So I, I wasn't trying to suggest that, I mean, I think that the, the radical skepticism can be really radical. Um, it's certainly, you know, you, you can be 
an almost total critic of a society without being a conspiracy theorist in some of the ways that you suggested. And I think the examples you gave are absolutely right. I also think your point about John Stuart Mill is right too. I mean, I'm not saying he himself. I mean, there is a million ideal of democracy, which he didn't think was fit for all sorts of people around the world, just for sort of civilized Europeans. Um, There's that ideal, but Mill himself is a very interesting study. And, And then you do get... I mean, this gets a little bit sort of technical, but you do, you, there, there is a road from John Stuart Mill to what's called government house utilitarianism, which is where you're ruled by utilitarians who don't tell you that they're utilitarians because you wouldn't understand because you people are too stupid. And that is a recipe for conspiracy theory. If ever there was one, I would have thought. So it's not like John Stuart Mill is, is I'm suggesting, is in any way immune. Um, but I do, I, I do think that even, you, there is an ideal of a kind of radical, skeptical critique of, institutional structures of power, coercion, and domination, which is not conspiracy theory-minded, but it is still hard, I think, to be confident that you can insulate it from some of the other things. And I think some of the problems at the margins are the same, but I didn't want to suggest that it's tame skepticism and radical cynicism. You can have radical skepticism. I am pessimistic. I mean, I was trying to suggest I don't think there's a lot we can do um, because, I mean, there are some things that we can do. But I do think that a lot of this is, is responsive. I mean, we could have a better functioning democracy, but that doesn't answer the question. No, it's like saying, what should we do? Well, we should have other people than Trump and Sanders duking it out for the American president. I mean, it's just, and, and the danger is, so Cass Sunstein is an example here, which is you know, he has a solution which is that you get former conspiracy theorists to infiltrate conspiracy theory groups and turn them. And to his amazement, he's discovered that people don't like being told that there is a secret plot by the American government to infiltrate their conspiracy theory groups with former conspiracy theorists in order to turn them. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's treacherous territory. Like I said, it would be nice to be able to engineer it, but we live in an age where there is deep suspicion of engineering. Uh, social, political, or whatever other kinds. So I think the things that we can do are much more generic than that, which is, like I say, I think it's symptom, not cause. And where it does seem to be to ask ourselves not what can we do about conspiracy theory, but what's gone wrong with our democracy. Okay. Um, can I have uh, this man here with uh, the glasses again and then the gentleman up the back? Um, Dr. Keith Postler latterly a Department of Statistics, now Anthropology. Um, you mentioned that um, a, a group um, 19 to 30-ish um, in passing mm. um, uh, were most likely or prone to... Yeah, um, more, more likely, yeah. More likely. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet <clears throat> one could think that um, as people get older they have more experience and might um, uh, become either more cynical or um, more hardcore, if you will, Mm. um, conspiratorial um, Mm. uh, in attitude. Uh, Do you find there's any variation in age, the question, do you find there's any variation in age or development um, in uh, people or populations I've learned to pause. Uh, That's great. Um, (laughs) Black up the back. Um, 
I wanted to, to ask you a bit more about the Scottish um, lack of conspiracy theory and whether your, pop, your, your sample population was outside the central belt because when I've been to the north of Scotland or the islands, it feels like a, a very, very long way from power. Yeah. And um, yeah. to extrapolate the question of PR, whether that um, helps as to whether you're looking at whether too much PR can actually put the crazies into the, um, into the parliament and whether it becomes... What, to what are you referring? <laughs> whether it becomes ungovernable, whether it's, you know, um, uh, uh, Spain struggling to form a government or, you know, there's potential that the Irish um, parliament after the next election will just be full of independence and it will be impossible to form a government because it, there's just not enough uh, coherent party structure. Um, and so both these questions make me think that I overstated. I mean, it's a bit overdetermined what I was saying, and the figures aren't... I, I, I haven't got the figures, I'm sorry. They're significant, the differences. Um, I think sort of overall Scots, 10 to 12% less likely to believe some of these things. But obviously it doesn't mean that sort of all Scots... Are, uh, and you're going to get exactly... The, if that explanation holds, you're going to get exactly the same kind of explanation. Uh, going to get the same kind of patterns about distance from power, I'm sure. So, and, and yeah, absolutely. I, like I said, it was just a hypothesis that I actually don't myself believe in, uh, but we want to test, which is, is it, is it a function of PR? Because, of course, there are other ways in which PR can go the wrong way. So PR can produce entrenched party elites that just sort of rotate power and party lists and so on, and it can produce one-party government for long, long periods of time, actually, because everyone forms a coalition with the main parties. But it also can produce deadlock... Um, Weimar Germany is not a great advert for proportional representation, and that was a hotbed of conspiracy theories. We know that, but for all sorts of reasons. And again, with young people, I was probably, again, I'm sorry, I haven't got the figures, slightly overstating it. I mean, maybe one thing to say is that I also was overdoing it by saying that conspiracy theory is inherently cynical, because it can also be idealistic, right? A belief that there is a purer way of doing things that gets rid of stuff that's corrupted and tainted and so on. And that can often come out as a kind of conspiracy theory. And I think it's a really interesting question why Jeremy, not Piers Corbyn, and um, Bernie Sanders have such a hold on a certain age group. Um, I don't think it's cynicism. I mean, I think it's unquestionably idealism. But it does have these interesting relationships between the fine line that sometimes divides idealism from a radical critique that's actually unrealistic because it posits the idea that if you could get rid of the few bad people who are pulling the strings, it would all be all right. And those choices look very difficult when seen from a position of power than from a position of protest. So there are lots of interesting things to play out here, including what happens if one of these kinds of politicians wins power to that support group. Do they, I hesitate to say this, grow up? um, Or do they become disgusted by the compromises. Let me just ask you a couple of questions um, since we're coming towards the end. The first is concerned with the sort of the basic empirical evidence you've laid out. I mean, earlier on, I had the impression that you were saying that the extent of belief in conspiracy theory was not unusual in the present. You were saying that if you look back at letters and so on. In in the American case. In the American case. But then later on, you seem to be talking as though now was one of a series of peak moments along with the 1890s and the 1950s. And uh, So the first question is just to clarify that. Is it a peak moment or is it sort of ordinary politics in a sense? The second thing is about the relationship between these kinds of beliefs and religious belief. I mean, on the one hand, 
you might think that they perform a certain sort of similar function to explain undesirable events over which you don't have much control. On the other hand, I wouldn't be surprised, though I might be wrong, if people who have religious belief are less likely to be conspiracy theorists, if only because they have a kind of a uh, sort of unquestionable faith of their own. So I just wondered if you would comment on the relationship between religion and... Okay, so the second question is difficult. The first one, I think I can say that, um, yeah, I, so if it sounded like I was saying two contradictory things, so I was trying to counter the view that if you look at the sort of, if I had a thing, I would draw it, if you look at the graph of prevalence of conspiracy theory, it just goes up, sort of swooshing up into the 21st century. It's relatively stable with these occasional peaks. And so what I'm trying to suggest is, it, where we are is certainly not unprecedented, but it's possible, it's not certain, but it's possible it's one of these peak periods of which we have seen, certainly in the American case, at least a couple before. Um, it would be unprecedented if it lasted a long time. I mean, you know, so what, what happens in the, the 1890s populist moment? I mean, we're talking significant numbers of years, but we're not talking about an entrenched period of kind of alienation. Things changed. Um, same with the 1950s. The McCarthy period was, a, it was, in grand historical terms, a kind of moment. Um, but I think this one might be different, not because I think there's going to be more of it necessarily, but that it might be more entrenched. So that was what I was trying to suggest. But I, I was trying to counter the view that is sometimes held, which is that basically conspiracy theory was invented on the 22nd of November 1963, and then it exploded into life on the uh, 11th of September 2001. Um, that's not true. On the question of religion, I mean, this is a big, complicated thing, and, and uh, there's a big literature on this. We've studied it. It's the history of conspiracy theory and the relationship with religion, and once you take this story back to the French Revolution and so on, it's an incredibly complex story. A lot of the earliest conspiracy theories are about religion and religious order and power. Um, I don't know, and I'm sure, actually, that the book I referred to probably does address this question, so I'm just guessing here. I don't know whether... And the extensive work that's been done, and it's mainly being done by North American academics about North American populations, whether there's evidence that <clears throat> levels of religious belief, particularly maybe certain kinds of evangelical religious belief, I mean, there is evidence that levels of religious belief correlate, for instance, I think, with climate skepticism and so on, and some of that does certainly feed into conspiracy theory. I would be surprised if your final hypothesis were true, that because people have a kind of steady faith, they're willing to kind of take other stuff more at face value. I mean, my suspicion is that in the American case, there probably is a correlation between certain kinds of religious belief and a propensity towards conspiracy theory because we, we have seen evidence that there is a relationship between what's sometimes called magical thinking about a whole range of things. Uh, but these often will come out as the conspiracy theories about science, not about politics. So, for instance, the view that vaccinations are a government plot to brainwash people I think, and I am just guessing here, and this is on the record, I know it's all being taped, so if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I think um, does correlate with certain kinds of religious beliefs. Um, but again, this current presidential election is so fascinating because Trump, <laughs> as, the, as the vehicle of evangelical faith, you've got to be kidding. Well, and you've got to be kidding is obviously a good conspiracy theorist line. <laughs> Well, I think, I think on that point, um, we, we do have to draw it to an end. I mean, I, I just wanted to, to thank you very much. I mean, it was a, it was a wonderfully fluent and, and um, in, terribly interesting talk. I mean, I think it's, it's quite important to be thinking about these questions and to try to draw the line, though you've emphasised how difficult it is 
between questions of whether these ideas are a sort of mainstream threat or a marginal problem, and, and, and more fundamentally whether they're a manifestation of scepticism or political cynicism. So thank you very much for coming and contributing. Can I ask you to join me in thanking our speaker?